The reading for tonight's sermon comes from Jude 1 through 4. The Word of God speaks to us. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who, were, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God to us. All right, hey guys, good evening. It's, uh, it's really great to see you here tonight, and uh, if we haven't met, my name's Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here, and whether you're new to our church or you've been a part of Frontline for a long time, it's always fun when we open up a new book together. We love to preach through books of the Bible. We think that the world abounds with hot takes, and the worst things that our pastors could possibly do for you is just give you yet another hot take to contend with. So we want to open God's Word, and we want to hear from God's Word, because as we open God's Word, here's what happens. We actually are invited into an encounter with God himself. And that's what you need, man. Like, more than you need tips or tricks or hacks, you need the living God. And so as we open this book, as we start to dive in, we're going to take four weeks in the book of Jude. And this little letter is one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible. It is incredibly timely. There are some weird moments in this book, and we're going to have fun going through it. So I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, grab one on the sides on your way out. Take one of those with you. That's yours. And bring a Bible with you. Follow along. And if you are ready to do so, jump into a community group. We got community groups that are meeting all over the city, and that's just a place where imperfect people get together to try to encourage each other to follow Jesus. And we'll be talking about what we learn on Sundays, we'll be processing it, we'll be praying together, and there'll be time to integrate what we're learning with our heads and our hearts and our hands. So I'm going to pray for you, ask you to pray for me, and let's dive in and do some work together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is not stale, it's not brittle, it's not dry, it's not dusty. Thank you that your word, though written in many languages over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, in different contexts, in different cultures, even though we have to do work to understand these ancient cultures that we don't understand, your word is nonetheless active and it's timely and it's helpful and it's actually beautiful. And I pray today as we open your word that you would help us to not just be Bible geeks, like we want to know your word and we want to memorize your word and we want to live by your word, but we more than anything want to encounter you in your word. We want you to connect our heads and our hearts. We want to be set ablaze to love you with the depths of our being. And Holy Spirit, these are things that I certainly can't accomplish and we collectively can't accomplish that. That's your work. So will you come and feed us and clothe us and teach us and encourage us and lead us to take just a couple of steps over the next month deeper in our devotion to Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And if you agree with that, you can say amen, which means so be it. Amen. 
Okay, so if you got a Bible, turn to Jude. If you don't know where it is, I'm so glad that you're here. We're going to walk through this whole book together and you'll get really familiar with it. It's at the very end of the, of the New Testament. So if you don't know where it is, you can turn to the book of Revelation and hang a left and you'll be there in a few pages. And what I want to do today is really simple. I want to give you some tools for you to read this book. I want to help you understand this book. And to do that, I want to try to just do a few things together in our time tonight. I want to, one, talk about who wrote this book. I want you to see that who wrote this book is actually one of the things that's beautiful and amazing about it. Number two, I want to talk about the heart behind this book. I want you to feel that this book is alive. It's pulsing with the very love of your Father in heaven for you. And there's moments in this book where it's really confrontational. Jude is writing against false teachings in the church and he uses strong language. But every turn of this book, every syllable, every word, every sentence, every paragraph in this little book was written because God loves his people and God wants to shape his people and he wants to be gracious and compassionate to his people. And then finally, I wanna talk about why this book was written. I wanna help unpack the main theme of this book. So if you got your Bibles, follow with me. We're gonna start with the big question at the beginning. Who wrote this thing? Look at verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Okay, this is a really fascinating introduction. It's a really interesting guy to write a book of the Bible. Jude, the brother of James, is also most likely, almost assuredly, the half-brother of Jesus. James is a brother of Jesus, and when Jude says that he is the brother of James, he's hinting at something that's really important. He's Jesus' half-brother. And it's a little weird to me at first glance that he doesn't lead with that. That's like being one of the Baldwin brothers and not claiming that Alex your brother, instead saying your brother's with Daniel. It's weird. Lead with Jesus. That's a bigger impact, right? Okay, but here's what he's doing. It's actually profoundly theological for him to introduce himself as a servant or quite literally a bond slave of Jesus who was his brother after the flesh is for James to make a statement that we need to hear tonight, and that's that relationship with Jesus according to the flesh is of no eternal benefit to anybody. It's amazing that Jesus is his brother. That's cool. That's a blessing. That's phenomenal to grow up in a household with Jesus and Mary. That would be wild. But the thing that makes James a bondservant of Jesus is not the fact that Jesus is his half-brother because of Mary. The thing that makes it amazing is that James came to trust in Jesus as God in the flesh. And this is an amazing apologetic for the church. Like, it blows my mind that we have people that were related to Jesus after the flesh that were a part of the early church that trusted in Jesus, not just as a good teacher or a prophet or another rabbi, but they actually point to Jesus as God, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I, I don't know if you guys have siblings. I've got uh, four, two brothers, two sisters. I love all of them. They mean a lot to me. Never have I been tempted to worship any of them. Something happens upon the resurrection of Jesus that led a Jewish man like Jude, who was raised in a strict monotheistic faith, to actually realize that the one God has eternally existed in three persons, and in the fullness of time, God the Son took on flesh to redeem us. And that's going to be important as we study this book, that it was written by the bondservant of Jesus, who happens to be Jesus' brother. 
Now, I want you, number two, to listen to the heart behind this book. And we're going to have to remind each other of this throughout the book because there's going to be moments where this book pulls no punches. This is a full contact book of the Bible. It's confrontational. Jude gets a bit aggressive, right? This book is on 11 when it comes to pointing out errors in the church. But here's the heart behind this entire book. Listen to what he says. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Hey, that makes me want to weep because the heart of this book is not the rigidity of God. It's not the distance of God. It's not God just being a theological neatnik who wants to point out the errors in the church because he's the cop in the heavenlies who just sort of gets off on being right. The thing that's driving this whole book is that God is the one that calls, God is the one that loves, and God is the one that keeps his people. To be called of God is to be loved by God before we loved God. And to be the beloved of God means that we're not just servants of God, but through the work of Jesus, we're offered the opportunity to become children of God and brothers and sisters And to be kept of God, this is one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith. If you understand what it means to be kept by God, the result of that will be phenomenal joy in the midst of all your strugglings and difficulties along the journey of discipleship. To be kept of God means that it's God's strength that's going to get you to the end in faith, not your own strength. That he's working. And there's a paradox there because we still have agency. We're going to be told that we're kept for Jesus Christ by God. And we're going to be told in this book several times that we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. And so there's agency on our part, but the one that's powerful, the one that's, the one that's effective in his keeping power is God himself who pursues us and chooses us and loves us and gets us to the great day. So the heart of this book is not to add a little bit of mercy or add a little bit of peace, or add a little bit of love to your life. But here's what he says. May mercy, may peace, and may love be multiplied to you. And there's a lot of hopes I have for our church, man. Like, I hope over the next 15 years that God would see fit to grow our church in serving the poor of our city that God would help us to plant a lot of churches, that God would help us to raise up leaders that would love God's word, that God would help us to be a force for reconciliation in our town, that we would see marriages restored, that we would see single men and single women live out their singleness to the glory of God. Like I have thousands of dreams for our church, but there's no prayer in all the Bible that resonates with me more as one of your pastors than the prayer, may mercy and may peace and may love be multiplied. And what's so crazy about mercy, love, and peace being multiplied is that they're not multiplied in the context of easy situations and circumstances. The mercy that he's praying would be multiplied is in the context of conflict with people who are teaching false things. And the peace is in the context of division happening in the church. And the love is in the context of hostility towards those that are trying to follow Jesus. Therefore, the mercy, peace, and love that God wants to multiply through the people of God is mercy, peace, and love in the context of a difficult environment. Now, let's keep going. Follow with me. Here's what I want you to see. 
why was this letter written? And this is where we get to the crux. We're going to come back to this for all four weeks. It's so important that you hear these two verses. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay, the why behind this book, I want to break it down in three bits. The why behind this book can be summed up by three things. Number one, this letter was written out of the necessity of love for the actual church in this age. Not for the church as she will one day be without sin, without division, without weakness, without failure. But the heart behind this book is that God wants to meet the church on this side of history as we await the return of Jesus with all the crazy mixture that the church is with the love that we need to keep forming us and moving us forward. Now, where am I getting that? Well, look what he says. He says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. This is not the book that Jude really wants to write. Jude wants to hold up the mystery of salvation like a jewel And he just wants to walk around the room with all the Christians and hold up that jewel and let the light catch the different facets. He wants to soar. He wants to do 25 verses of doxology like he does a couple verses at the end of this book. He wants this thing to be a symphony about the mystery of God in Jesus Christ. But here's what he says. Necessity and and frankly, the literal necessity of love was laid on him to write a different kind of letter. And this is really important because on this side of heaven, the necessity of love is the necessity of recognizing that until the great day, the church is always going to be a mixed bag. The church is always going to contain that which is ugly and that which is beautiful. The church is always going to have truth and error. The church is always going to have genuine belief and people with manipulative agendas. The church is going to have true teachers and false teachers. The church is going to have good motives and bad motives. And it's not just a binary either or. There's also going to be the really confusing, complex territory of gray where we don't even know exactly where we stand with all those things. And so what Jude is doing is really mature. It's really fatherly. It's really faithful. And it's a powerful model for you and me. He's not writing to an idealized version of the church. He's not writing to the church in glory. We won't need at that point apostles in heaven to write us letters of correction. He's writing to the church on this side of the return of Jesus to help us in the hot mess that we are. And this is really important because listen, I get, man, that we're in the Midwest and my most pagan friends are all people that like went to church and half of them went to seminary. And I get that there's disappointments and there's letdowns and there's frustrations and there's relational tension and there's friction and there's ways in which that the church really does fail and then there's ways in which we sort of just drift out of relationship and we need somebody to blame. And in the midst of all of that, like, I get, I get the tension and the frustration, but here's what I want to say. What Jude is modeling for us is not idealistic naivete. 
And it's not cynicism. He's modeling for us actual love. That we are a mess, but we're a mess that's been redeemed by grace. And our job in contending for the faith is to realize that all of us have our part to play. Anybody in this room that calls upon the name of Jesus, we all have our part to play in pursuing greater purity as the church. And even as we pursue greater purity, we have to have eyes wide open that we're not going to reach perfection in that pursuit until we see Jesus face to face. So this book is about love and the necessity of reality. Number two, this book is written to address the threat from within, the threat from within. And I just want to be as clear as I can that like throughout every age in the history of the church, there are external threats to the church. Uh, in the first few centuries, Rome was super hostile. Rome tried to snuff out the Christian faith through profound persecution. In different eras of the church, the church has been up against external enemies like Marxism behind the Iron Curtain, an atheistic regime that wanted to kill the faith of Christians. In other eras, the church has been opposed by fascist regimes. It's tragic if you read just sort of German history around the Nazi party's rise to power, how there were strategies to influence and to lead the church away from true devotion to Jesus. That could be said of post-enlightenment secular humanism. That could be said in our cultural moment about postmodern secularism. Secularism, And in the midst of all of those external threats to the church, they're real and we need to be aware and sober about them. We need to understand the cultural moment that we're living in. But here's what you gotta see. The greatest threat to the health and vitality of the church is not the external. It's when we start to lower the drawbridge from the inside. It's when we start to bite and devour each other. It's when we start to multiply false teachings. It's when we start to take teachings on the outside that are not true about Jesus and import them into the very center of the church. And what happens, what happens with this threat from within is described in verse four. Here's what it says. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is this. There are people that were gathering as the church worshiped on the Lord's day. There were people that were a part of the love feast of the early church. That would be a meal where followers of Jesus would break bread and receive the Lord's supper. And there were people sort of on assignment from the enemy that would come into the church and the motives that they had for participating in the church was not to be seekers who are trying to wrestle with questions of doubt and belief. That's a good place to be. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, like we want you here. We're so glad that you're here. Like we pray for you all the time that this would be a place for you in your journey of faith, whether you're here for 20 years and agree to disagree and walk away or whether you're here for a month and choose to, to follow Jesus, like, we love it that you're here. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about people that are actually under the influence of teachings and beliefs that are the absolute opposite of what Jesus handed his apostles and what the church is about. And what starts to happen is those false teachings, they spread like cancer in the church, and they're almost always connected to two things. And he describes the two things really well. And I, I want us to really pay attention because this is our cultural moment. Here's what he says. 
he says they do two things. Look at, uh, look at verse 4 again. They were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, they do two things. One, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And number two, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These twofold cancers, these twofold errors are the most destructive things that can take root in our lives and take root in the church. And as I talk about these two things, I want to stop and encourage you to not become the sheriff of theology in this moment, right? To not, to not be the watchdog or the discernment blogger or to think of all the people in our church and start, you know, being like the secret police of their social media. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you, step one, as we look at these two cancers, to just ask honest questions about where might they be infiltrating your own system of belief? Where do you find them present in your affections? Where do you find them present in your thoughts? Where do you, by the way, the only person that you have agency for is you, and the only person you can really change is you, and you need the help of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to do so, but you have a part in that. And so as we talk about these two cancers, let's not point the finger, although there is a place for contending and confronting, we'll get to that, but let's start with just self-assessment. Do we fit on this grid? So let's talk about the two things. Let's talk about the perversion of grace. We can't talk about the perversion of grace without talking about the wonder of grace or the scandal of grace. So let me just take my best shot really fast at reminding you of what you should always be amazed by with the grace of God. The grace of God is profoundly different than any religious system in the world. Religion is about man getting to God. God's grace is about God getting to us in Jesus. And here's what we find in scripture, that the grace of God is not about penance. It's about forgiveness freely given. It's not about earning. It's about unmerited favor. The grace of God is not about self-righteousness, but receiving the gift of Jesus' righteousness. The grace of God is not about our moral superiority, but it's about the power of a perfect life lived in our place and sacrificed on a cross for us. The grace of God is not about paying off your debts to God as if you could afford to do so. The grace of God is about God in his son Jesus paying off an infinite debt that you and me could never repay if we had 10 lifetimes to try. The grace of God is offered freely to anyone and everyone, no matter what their crimes against God and humanity are. The grace of God is extended to the world and there is no sin that the grace of God cannot erase thanks to the blood of Jesus. The grace of God says you are hungry, be fed for free. The grace of God says you are naked, be clothed for free. The grace of God says you are guilty, be pardoned for free. And on top of all that, the free author of God's grace is not to become just paroled convicts or just pardoned servants in God's house. We are God's servants, but we're God's servants because we've received the wonder of being adopted as God's sons and daughters. The grace of God should make your mouth drop open. The grace of God should freak you out. It should shock you. It should be borderline offensive to you every time you think about it. The grace of God is amazing. And what happened in the early church and what's been happening throughout the history of the church is this error of mistaking the free grace of God with cheap grace. 
When we mistake the free grace of God with cheap grace, we mess up the whole thing. We mess up the wonder and the scandal and the beauty of what God's done for us through his grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany. He ended up being killed by the Nazis in a prison. He loved Jesus. He trained pastors in the underground church, and he's written some really helpful books that I commend to you. One of them is The Cost of Discipleship, and Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace like this. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So here's what started to happen. People who had only a framework for religious systems in which people through ritual and through trying harder, through sacrifice, were trying to get back in God's good graces through their effort, this new message of the grace of God in Jesus Christ that's offered freely came to those people and they heard that news and they started getting confused and they started saying, well, man, this is the message that we should just keep sinning that that grace would abound. And Paul writes in Romans chapter six, these words, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who've died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So track with me. Grace strengthens the line between good and evil. It doesn't erase it. Grace is the power to fight sin, not permission to make a treaty with it. Grace is not the obliteration of God's good order. It's God's order being affirmed and fulfilled in Jesus. Grace is not an excuse to stay the same. It's an invitation with the help of God and his very presence to be changed. And none of this means that this happens instantaneously. None of this means that we see struggling or failing or falling. We need grace at every turn of the Christian journey. But here's what you have to understand. Grace is free, but grace is really costly. Grace co costs Jesus his life. And when you understand grace and the cost that God's paid for our redemption, that will make us more serious about fighting against sin. And we'll still fail, we'll still fall short. Martin Luther is really helpful in a lot of places and he points out that the tension of being a Christian is that we have dual identities. We are sinners and saints at the same time. And that's gonna happen all the way until we see Jesus face to face. We're gonna need to repent. We're gonna need each other. We're gonna need the sacraments. We're gonna need help. That's why we gather together. But in the midst of all of our failings and flaws, you know that you're starting to move towards cheap grace or the perversion of grace when you're less impressed with Jesus and you're more enamored with sin and you start to make treaties and truces and excuses for the sins that cost Jesus his life. And we start to pretend that they're no big deal and we start to wink at them or we start to theologize them away or we start to make space in our lives where we're not even contending and we're not even fighting and we're not even inviting people in to help fight for us. It's the perversion of grace. And they've perverted it into sensuality, which just means carnality. 
They've perverted the grace of God into sexual sin, into all kinds of areas of freedom from God's restrictions and boundaries that are for our good. And when we start to do this, we start to lose the farm. We start to lose the wonder of Jesus and we start to lose our growth in holiness. Now this leads to the second thing, which is connected. The cancer is also the denial of our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really important. The root of almost every heresy and every form of apostasy since the beginning of the church, it can almost always be traced to a truncated, a diluted, or a reimagined version of Jesus. And this has happened throughout history. There were people in the early years of the church that started teaching that Jesus just appeared to be a human. They were changing what Jesus actually is and what scripture says about Jesus, about his full humanity. That's a dilution of who Jesus is. Later, after the enlightenment, there were people that wanted to strip all of the supernatural away from the Bible. And they wanted to pretend to be Christians while saying that Jesus was just a good teacher and that the resurrection is a myth or a metaphor instead of what we know to be true, a bodily reality that Jesus came back from the dead. And in our cultural moment, we do it in different ways, but the great challenge to the Christian faith is when we try to do custom modifications on who Jesus is. Now look how he frames it up. This is, I think, really helpful. And I think it's important to remember that Jude is Jesus' brother at this point. Meaning, Jude knew the full humanity of his brother Jesus. He was there when Jesus had a cold. He was there when Jesus came in from the workshop smelling bad. He was there when Jesus had morning breath. He was there when Jesus had gas. He was with Jesus for all the human bodily functions that we're with our siblings for. And yet look what he writes, verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Hey, that blows me away. The thing that's wild about the book of Jude is not that Jude takes his personal relational experience with Jesus and just talks about Jesus as his brother or his friend or his buddy. He's not overly familiar in unhelpful ways with Jesus. He's writing about his half-brother, but he talks about him as master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is really important because the reality is that though Jesus was his brother, he's not just his brother. And though Jesus is our friend, and he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, he's not just our friend. The reality is, is that Jesus is both master and Lord. He is king of kings. He is to be rightly feared and rightly obeyed. And this is something that we need to hear. Jesus is not your pop psychologist blogger. Jesus is not your life coach. Jesus is not your boyfriend. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your king. He's your king. And he's intimate and he's kind and he's merciful. But listen, according to C.S. Lewis describing Asland, he's good, but he's not tame. And he's not someone that you can sort of sand the edges off that you find offensive or troubling or that you can adjust to fit your image or that you can make more palatable. Jesus is who he is. And you can believe him and obey him even where there's places where there's frustration and tension there. Or you can reject him. What you can't do is make him something that he's not. 
And what we're going to be introduced to in this book is that Jesus is the very embodiment. He's the very fullest reality of love and mercy and grace and goodness. And he is mighty. He is serious. He is at war with evil. He is relentless in his pursuit of his people. He doesn't want to share you. Nothing was more disastrous for the people of God when we pervert the grace of God into sensuality and when we deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And this leads to the last thing. We'll end with this. Thirdly, this book is written that we might contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Okay, let me, let me try to be brief and land the plane. Okay, here's what's wild. This letter was written somewhere around the mid-60s AD. The mid-60s AD. And what Jude is saying right now is kind of mind-blowing. He's saying by the mid-60s AD, the faith once for all delivered was in its fullness given to the people of God. Meaning, meaning the substance of the faith, the body of the faith was there in 65 AD in its fullness. Now track with me. Over the years, here's what's going to happen. People are going to unpack and explain the faith once delivered. We're going to get various teachers throughout the ages. They're going to study God's word and they're going to do the best to help us understand it. This beautiful message of Jesus Christ is going to be translated into every imaginable language. It's going to be spoken with every possible accent. It is a faith that can go into any culture on the planet and be contextualized in ways that doesn't require that people learn a new language or adopt a new style of dress or meet in a cathedral or have to meet in some certain type place. It's a faith that is profoundly contextual contextual. And yet, listen, its substance, its essence is not to be added to. It's not to be reduced. It's not to be tweaked. It was full in the mid-60s AD. Jesus had taught and he had handed the faith to the apostles and the foundation of our faith existed then. And to tamper with it, to tweak it, to dilute it, to tweak it and to change it is not to improve it. It's to lose it. Now, the substance of our faith has three dynamics. And I, I'm borrowing this loosely from John Stott in his commentary on 1 John. I think he's really helpful here. I'm changing the language, but I got the idea from him. So when we talk about the faith once delivered, it's helpful to think about three things. And I'm going to close with this. Three things. The faith once delivered includes belief. That's the doctrinal substance of the faith. It includes obedience. That's the moral substance of the faith. And it includes love. That's the relational substance of the faith. And here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to think of it as three strands in one rope. And when the rope is braided together with all three strands, what we have is the embodiment of the faith once for all delivered. When we take one strand and we separate it out from the other two, or when we take all three strands and we divorce them from one another, you have something that might contain components of the faith once delivered, but it is not the faith once delivered. 
The faith once delivered includes belief, it includes obedience, and it includes love. And all three are essential. When we talk about belief, we're talking about things that matter, like who is God? And who is his son Jesus? And what is salvation? And what are people for? And what does it mean to be both fallen creatures, but beloved image bearers? And what does it look like to receive salvation? And where is the world going? And what happens when we die? And what does it look like to live lives together? And what is this thing called the church that's so mysterious that God calls it his son's bride? When we talk about obedience, we're talking about things that matter, like how do we give Jesus our lives? How do we not just love Jesus by memorizing creeds, but then having lives that don't seek to follow him in relationships and with our time and with our treasure and with our bodies? Obedience asks questions about how do I grow in holiness and how do I master this thing that's a gift my body, but that also wars against me? How do I deal with my flesh and how do I, what do I do when I fail? What do I do when I don't honor God with my relationships, with my singleness, with my marriage as a parent? It matters. And love is so essential. Without the relational substance of the faith, where do we find the power to keep ourselves in God's love? Where do we find the power to say no and deny ourselves because we believe that there's something better and more beautiful than whatever pleasure we're saying no to in the moment? How do we treat friends and family and neighbors and enemies? And how do we find courage to even be rejected because we know if God is for us, who can be against us? And what I want you to see today is that if we take just one of those strands and we divorce it from the others and we untie the rope, we're not improving on anything. To try to contend for belief without obedience gets absurd. And Christians have done this for thousands of years. This is when we have creed without life. When we have mouths for God, but hearts that are far from God. When we believe the right things, but we don't actually feel ourselves moved to any sort of obedient action by those things. This is why James wrote in his great little letter, faith without works is dead. And he tells us that Satan believes the right things, but he doesn't love God and he doesn't obey God. When we try to contend for belief without love, we get the worst things that the church has ever done. We get cold fundamentalism, or we get the horrors of the Inquisition, or we get duty without mercy. We miss joy, we miss worship, we miss wonder, and we forget the gospel. When we try to contend for obedience without belief, we get exhausted. We get exhausted because we're disconnecting the why from all the how. To try to obey God without believing what God teaches is to reduce the wonders of marriage and celibacy and self-denial and cross-bearing to just hollow moralism, to just rules that we're keeping. We don't even know why we're keeping them. And listen, in our moment, this is the one that I need to pause on and say as loudly and clearly as I know how to say, to contend for love without belief and obedience is the height of absurdity. To try to contend for love without faith and obedience is to redefine the Bible's definition of love and make it something completely different that doesn't at all resemble love. It turns love into sentimentality. 
into just following our urges and our hearts, falling in and out of love and just doing whatever we're emotionally led to do. To contend for love without belief? How will you do that? How can you love God without seeing who he is in his son Jesus and believing? How can we even know what love is if we don't know that our triune God is love? And how on earth, how on earth could we contend for love without obedience? Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. These three strands of belief and of obedience and of love, they're not unimportant. They are the very essence of what makes up the core of the faith once delivered. And we live in a moment where one of the most radical, beautiful, brave, courageous, subversive, and costly things that you could possibly do is just fight to believe and to hold on to all three strands of what it is to be a Christian. And if you don't, I don't think you'll make it to the end. You need all three. And what's amazing is sometimes we're all tempted to abandon one of the three. There's been times where the assault on my faith has been an assault of belief. And there's times where the assault on my faith is an assault against my obedience. And there's times where the assault on my faith is an assault against love that makes me want to question that the Father cares about me or be angry at where he's led me or become hard-hearted and cynical and to hate my enemies. And we need the grace of God and the presence of God to be followers of Jesus that receive and contend for the real thing. Because listen, if this is not the real thing, what are we doing in here? Like, what a waste of time. What a silly waste of time. Let's go ride bikes, if that's all it is. For real, let's like, let's go to the lake. But the faith once delivered, the faith of Jesus and the apostles, the faith that contains the message of salvation, the faith that contains timeless truth, the faith that's costly, the road that's narrow, even though it's hard and it's difficult and your friends and neighbors will think you're weird if you hold on to all three strands, it's worth your life. It's worth your life. And the heart behind this book, let me remind you, is not to flatten your life or to make your life dull or boring or just grudging obedience. The heart of this book is to multiply mercy and peace and love in your life. So Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends and I pray for myself that you would keep us like you've promised to do that you would help us. Lord, in this room, I don't know where my friends are being tempted to unbraid the rope. Maybe it's belief disconnected from obedience. Maybe it's obedience disconnected from love. Maybe it's love disconnected from obedience and faith that's no longer love at all. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive what you've given us and to not do custom mods on something that you came up with. Help us, preserve us, and take the next four weeks to give us what we need. You're our father, and you're good, and you give good gifts to your kids, so will you help us to be faithful? Get us to the great day, get us to the ends, let us take our last breath in faith, and let our next sight be Jesus Christ, but we'll say it was all worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.